Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time we get to come together. Um, Lord, I ask that you would guide our discussion, that you would um, give us clarity with how to interact with the culture, um, and uh, give us wisdom um, on how to uh, reach this next generation with the gospel. In your son's name, amen. Okay, so um, the name of the t- uh, Sunday School series is called Uploading iGen, How Technology Has Changed a Generation, and How Can We Respond with the Gospel. Um, if you were here a couple of years ago, I did something similar um, called um, oh, Developing a Theology of Technology. And so this is kind of more updated. I was going to do that kind of redux um, when I was asked to do this class, but as I dived into the material, um, this became apparent that this is kind of what I needed to focus on during this class. Um, so if you were here before, you know uh, that this was kind of the iPhones and idolatry was the class, sorry, not developing a theology of technology was the RYM one. Um, the thesis statement for that class was technology is a tool and tools inherently help us do things better. Therefore, whatever is already happening in the home is magnified by the use of technology. And one of the things we looked at um, with uh, the data in um, 2017 um, was that parents dictated the use of technology in the home. While you weren't using the same screen, that was the big change between about 2010 and 2012. Um, you weren't, we weren't gathering around televisions to watch TV shows anymore as a family. Um, everyone kind of had their own um, screen and was kind of hooked on it. Um, so parents, um, believe it or not, um, spent just as much time looking at screen time as their kids did. Um, it was just a different screen. So they would come home and they'd be there, either be on the computer or they'd be watching television and their kids would either be playing video games or be on their phone. Um, so really, uh, the data told us that it dictated it. Um, that parents really dictated that. And that was one of the conclusions we drew from. Um, again, we kind of talked about that before. Parents model screen time. It's just a different type of screen. Um, since then, um, there's been new data that's come up, and we're, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, but there's going to change my original thesis. Um, before I go there, um, good morning. Um, before I go there, I want to um, say one thing. Um, Feel free to, if you have a question or you want me to clarify something, please raise your hand. I, I just don't want to be a talking gerbil, for, um, which is impressive, right, if you've ever seen a talking gerbil. I'm a, I don't want to be a talking gerbil for um, 45 minutes. So if you have a question, um, get it. If, Should we text it to you? Or yeah, text it to me would be preferable. Um, but feel free to ask me a question. Um, and if, I, if, you're, if you're jumping the gun, Ron has a habit of being two slides ahead of me. Um, I'll say, uh, just wait, hold your horses. Um, so just know it's coming. But uh, feel free to ask questions or to make sure that things are um, clear. I want to make sure it's clear. Um, so there has been just kind of a change to my original thesis, um, or at least my hy- hy- hypothesis. Um, parents still dictate screen time. The, the change is it's just not completely. Um, this is what I mean. We talked about this last class is that there are two types of people and there are digital immigrants and digital natives. Um, digital natives have our iGen. They've always had the internet, right? They've grown up. They've always had access to the internet, the, the generation. It's why, um, toddlers can use 
pads, iPads, and Kindles real easily. They just get it, right? Like, it's intuitive for them. It's instinctive. And my mother, who's definitely a digital immigrant, is like, how do you do that? Like, Stephen showing her how to get to stuff on the iPad and the Kindle, right? Because she's a digital immigrant. She is... She is um, <laughs> forcefully been moved to this uh, new land and country um, and she's had to adapt while digital natives it's just kind of been what they already knew so what makes this interesting for parents is that um, you don't remember a time where you had to transverse this right like your parents never had to teach you digital etiquette and so we're all figuring this out together Um, It is a brand new land, and it's a little scary. Um, I don't spit as much anymore, Caleb, if you want to sit up here. I'm a splash zone. Um, So we're all trying to figure it out. Second, there are societal pressures. If you're a teenager and you don't have a cell phone and you go to a public school, people do look at you funny, right? So there is this, like, there's this pressure. And... um, Secondly, if you're not using specific apps, you feel like you're missing out, right? If all your friends are on Snapchat um, or on Instagram and you don't have one and that's their main means of communicating with each other, then there is the sense that you're missing out. So there's this pressure to to want to be part of the group and fit in and it's not there. Um, There's also large societal pressures. So when you look at millennials and iGen, so millennials are born 83 to 85 to 94, and then iGen um, are those born after 95. Um, there are big brush strokes in society for them that kind of define who they are as a people group, right? Um, the big ones are individualism and consumerism. Um, those are the two major brush strokes. And so the phone, especially the personal phone, just kind of plays a huge role in that. It exacerbates individualism. Because you are literally in control and it exacerbates consumerism because your ideas of what to buy, where to go, and and how to influence your life are all here at the tip of a clip of a button. Um, Self-help and self-esteem, if you walk into a bookstore, I mean, the self-help section, I remember when I was a kid, was like, what, like half a bookshelf. Now it's a whole section at Barnes & Noble's. Um, But self-help and self-esteem are the mantras of the day. Uh, You turn on the Disney Channel or... Um, CW or anything that um, iGen will watch, um, it's all over there. And then self-identity is huge. Like the idea of self-identity is really a relatively new concept. Um, and so especially, specifically sexual identity um, is really kind of defines this generation. Um, and they're all magnified, as we talked about in the original thesis, by the tools that are in your pocket. So again, this tool kind of magnifies it. Um, so the, the other change in the hypothesis is that we now know the outcomes. So this is all happening really quick, right? So the last time I did this class was 2017. The material had been coming out for it in about 2015, 2016 for the class. Um, but this is all really brand new, right? We're talking less than eight years old. Um, really, we're talking less than seven years old. Um, now we're in 2019. So... The data for this stuff is just coming at us fast and furious. So really, we didn't have up-to-date data when I taught this class two years ago. So we were just kind of scratching the surface. Now we know the outcome. We're seeing it. And we have new studies, uh, new data compared to last time. And we're going to spend a lot of the first two weeks kind of looking at the data and then the rest of the time trying to figure out what to do with it, right? Um, So if you missed this class, it's a good one to kind of go back and just kind of um, see what you missed. Um, But the key year that we're going to find in the data is 2012. 2012 is the key year. Um, And and the last thing that we're going to talk about is that we know what's happening as a culture, but we don't know what to do about it yet. Um, 
And, and that's kind of the frustrating thing, right? Like, I want answers to my questions. And we don't really have them yet as a culture. We're still trying to figure out how to transverse this digital environment. And we're going to see that as we look at some of the data and the graphs here today. Um, example of we know what's happening in the culture, but we don't know what to do about it. Um, we know statistically that the average student uses a smartphone in class. Like, we know that. Um, it's something like they'll check their smartphone six or seven times over the course of a period, and they're sending at least three or four texts over one class, right? Like, we know that, but we're not doing anything about it, right? Like, school systems still aren't banning phones. Um, there's safetyism that plays into that, the parent pressure. We'll talk about that week two. Um, but no one's doing anything about it. We know there's a problem, but we're not doing anything about it. There was a school in France this year that, that did outlaw smartphones, and the results have been stunning, right? Like, as a... But we're, we know that, right? Like, as a culture, we're not going to do anything about it. It'll be about 10 years. I think there'll be pockets of classes and schools that start removing cell phones from the environment in the next two or three. But it'll be 10 years before we figure anything out how to handle it, um, which is unfortunate. Um, so here's the change to my original hypothesis, just so you can see it. Technology is a tool, and tools inherently help us do things better. Um, here's the change. Tools can have far-reaching impact on society. And society typically takes several generations to make a tool safe. Therefore, whatever is already happening in the home is magnified by the use of technology. So really, it's just kind of focusing on the tool itself. Uh, here's an example. Take the car, right? Like the car had far-reaching impacts on society as a whole. Um, you could get, now get away for the weekend, right? Like vacations went up with the, with the insert of the car. If you look at the correlation between dating and the car, there's a direct one-to-one -one correlation. Like the rise of modern dating happened in the 20s because suddenly you could take someone out, right? Um, so it has far-reaching impacts. car had been around since the 19th century. Ford made it popular in 1908. And 15 million Model Ts were sold between 1908 and 1927. Remember those dates. 15 million cars have been introduced from 1927. The first stop sign didn't come out until 1915 in Detroit. Right, so you're looking at six, seven years where no one stopped. Right, like, like we you have a huge problem. Okay, um, up to a dozen states didn't have speed limit laws until 1930. Right, so there's, woo, like you're buzzing. 1930, um, only 39 states required a driver's license by 1935. Hey, so you still had states where like literally anyone could get in the car. Um, traffic regulations did not become a national issue until 1966, looking at 30 years after the invention or the mass uh, popularity of the car. Seat belts were offered in some cars in 1949, but Ford made it popular in 1955. So you're looking at really 20-something years where, you know, nowadays we're like, of course you wear your seat belt. You're an idiot if you don't wear a seat belt, but people didn't get it. Uh, the three-point seat belt was patented by Volvo in 1959. The first child car seat, some of you remember those. Um, they looked like uh, what you get in at a roller coaster ride um, at the theme park, right? A little latch. And the, I mean, it's the exact same thing, right? It's terrifying. Um, 1962, and the first airbag was 1968. Um, so if you're over 60 in this room, I really have no idea how you're alive, um, right? Like, you, you lived in that. Um, I remember mom tells me horror stories. Not horror stories. She, she views them as fun. So they're all, you know, jumping in the, the old uh, um, 
What was it? Um, it's the long car. It's the Woody. What was the Woody? Station wagon, right? No seatbelts. All kids are facing back. Like, you remember that? I had one car trip where I sat in an old station wagon. It's like a three-year-old, four-year-old. I still remember it because I'm facing. I can see the cars coming head on to me. And like, no seatbelts. Just 12 people in that station wagon. Like, we're going to make it to church if it kills us, which it might, right? Um, so... Uh, and this is where we're at with social media, right? Facebook was invented in 2004, so that's the longest one. But even then, if you were around for Facebook, originally it was just for college students. If you didn't have an EDU um, uh, email account, you weren't getting the Facebook. Um, Twitter was invented in 2006, so a couple of years after. Instagram is 2010, and Snapchat is 2011. So you're looking at it. I mean, we're really under... A decade of having to do this. So if we're in the same place as the car, we don't have stop signs yet for some of these platforms. We don't have speed limit laws. We don't have licenses. Everyone is operating the technology. No one knows the impact yet until it hits them and there's no airbag, right? So that's where we're at with the technology. And that's what I mean by like we're, we're, we're still trying to fight the curve. Um, some of you are going to want to know, like this is, I can't cover everything, right? Like I, I wish I could, but I can't. But if you wanted to self-study some of this stuff and know more, let me give you some books to look at as a family um, or as individuals. This one was the last one that I did um, when I did iPhones and idolatry. It's The Next Story, Life and Faith After the Digital Explosion by Tim Chalice. It's a little bit dated, but it's still good as like some steps to use for like um, – how do I manage technology in my home as a family? You can tell it's dated because the mouse has a cord, right? <laughs> like, we don't do that anymore, um, even though it's supposed to be a ticking time bomb, too. It's clever, but, Tim, it's outdated. So. <laughs> Surprised he doesn't have a floppy disk up there, right? Um, this is another great one by Tony Ranke, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. It's actually a really smooth read. Um, it's, it's nice, so even though it's got a lot of data... Um, it rolls off the page quite well. Um, this is the one that I based a lot of today's lesson on, and as iGen, why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. Uh, this is thick. Um, uh, Gene Twenge is a um, sociologist and psychologist, so if you're not used to reading sociology and psychology texts, um, this might be a pain for you, but... Um, it is good if you really want a lot of data. Um, the next one is Unselfie um, by uh, Michelle Borba. Um, if you want Unselfie in micro, so this is for all the iGen in the back, she does have a TED Talk um, where she kind of breaks a lot of this down. So if you just want to watch the TED Talk and not read the book, um, you're welcome to. Um, but it, it really deals with empathy, right? Like this is, the, what, this is more of a solution. If we're becoming less empathetic as a culture, how do we teach empathy to the next generation? Next generation. So it's really interesting. I'm only about halfway through this book right now, um, but it's really good. And then this one was great when it breaks down. If you want a culture study, um, this is a dynamite book. It's The Coddling of the American Mind. If you want to understand iGen, you need to pick up this book. Um, it's very good. Um, and again, the last three books, are, are they're not Christian authors. Um, they are psychologists and sociologists. So you are just getting a broad spectrum. But, I mean, you see, you know, the fingerprints of the maker all over these books when it comes to um, morality. Because they all claim that there is an absolute. 
Um, and this last one, uh, my friend, uh, I haven't gotten to this one next year. This is next on my reading, but it's called Screenwise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Uh, I believe this is um, a believer. Um, my friend Jake turned me on to this one. But if you're trying to figure it out what to do as a parent, these are great ones, right? Um, so uploading iGen. Okay, so why iGen, right? Why not millennials? Um, most of the articles you read on the internet make fun of millennials, um, but really, if they're actually making fun of iGen, um, they just journalists don't know the difference yet um, because it's just happened so quick. Um, and there are there are very stark differences between my generation. I'm a millennial. I'm at the very front end, and an iGen. Um, millennials are known to have way too much self-esteem and a sense of self-worth. Um, that is very true. You can make fun of our generation for that. That's fine. Um, we'll take it um, because we still think we're amazing. Um, so, but that is that classifies millennials. Um, that peaked in my generation. Self-worth and self-image began to take a sharp decline um, towards the end of the millennial generation and continues to kind of sync with iGen. Um, iGen is born 1995 or later. They grew up with cell phones. They had an Instagram page before they started high school and do not remember a time before the internet. Um, the oldest members of iGen's, iGen were early adolescents when the iPhone was introduced in 2007 and high school students when the iPad entered the scene in 2012. The I and the names of those devices stand for the internet, the Internet was commercialized in 1995, the year that they were born. If this generation is going to be named after anything, the iPhone might just be it. According to a fall 2015 market survey, two-thirds of all iGen had an iPhone. So when it talks about market uh, like saturation, that is the main vehicle in which they use. Uh, one 17-year-old interviewed for an um, expose in American Girl said this, you have to have an iPhone. It's like Apple has a monopoly on adolescents. I would agree with that. And it's completely changed the way that teens interact with the world. Completely changed. Compared to, especially, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not that much removed from them, right? Like, I'm only 33. But there's a huge difference between how I spent my time in high school and how even they spend their time in high school. Um, so it's an even farther difference between some of um, you guys, too. Um, so the first question... Trivia question we're going to have today is average teen checks their phone how many times during the day? A, 12, B, 36, C, 80, or D, 192? So, E higher. Higher, E higher. So this is the average. This is the average, right? Um, so the, the average is 80. Okay, so 80 times. Well, that means there's going to be teens that check it less, and I can promise you from the data there are teens that check it a lot more. You can do that math in your head. I'm a theater major. I don't do math in my head, uh, but you can figure that out to see how many times in the waking hours that they check their phones. Um, this is what um, describing iGen, um, this is how, um, uh, I, I don't know if her name is Jean. I want to call her Jean. Because I, I know Jean's, but it's Jean Twinge. This is how she describes iGen. They are obsessed. Um, oh, sorry. It did come up. They are obsessed with safety and fearful for their economic futures across all socioeconomic demographics. Okay? They have no patience for inequality based on gender, race, or sexual orientation. They are at the forefront of the worst mental health crisis in decades, with the rates of teen depression and suicide skyrocketing since 2011. Contrary to prevalent idea that children are growing faster than the previous generation did, 
I generous our generous growing up more slowly. 18-year-olds now act like 15-year-olds, 13-year-olds act like 10-year-olds. Teens are physically safer than ever, yet they are mentally vulnerable. And so this is so I apologize. If that's offensive to any of the iGen in the room, I apologize. But that's the data, right? And there are ex, there are ex, like not expectations, but there are exceptions, right? Like we we all know eighteen year olds. So like, yeah, you're prepared for life. You're fine. Get out of here. Um, but we also know twenty four year olds where you're like, you're not prepared yet, right? So like, we know this. Um, so. How is this conclusion come to? How does she come to these conclusions? Um, how do we know iGen is different? And, and as we look at the data, we're really pulling from four major resources, okay? Um, the first is the Monitoring the Future survey. This surveys 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. 12th grader survey has been done every year since 1976. 8th and 10th graders since 1991. The total number of participants in that is 1.4 million. Okay, so that's a lot of people. The Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance System of 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th graders, this is administered by the Center of Disease Control and Prevention. Um, every year since 1991, they only have 175,000 uh, participants in the survey. The big one is the American Freshman Survey of Entering College Students. Um, this has been around since 1966, and they have approximately 10 million people surveyed. And then the general society, social survey of adults 18 and over um, every year since 19, every year, every other year since 1972, total number of survey participants is about 60,000. So as we look at the graphs, that's where we're pulling from. Yes. So where are those surveys administered? I mean- um, there's a bunch of different places. So the monitoring the future one is surveyed on um, uh, high school campuses. So there. Is it no, it is not. Or, I mean, uh, well, that one might be. So the youth risk behavior servant, that one is administered by the Center of Disease Control. Um, you can look at the, if you get her book, she breaks down in the appendix how all these are taken ex- example of. Um, the American Sur- Freshman Survey one, that is just people entering college. So people like uh, 18-year-olds entering the workforce would never take that survey. Um, but that one's been around. I think I took that one. Yeah, I mean, that one's been around forever. Um, and that one, I, I see, as I read stuff on um, uh, generations, that one is the most referenced survey because it is so vast. And that one started at UCLA, but that's the majority of college campuses. When they enter as college students, they'll take a survey. Uh, required, just suggest. I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, how is the data, I mean, how does that really show a true picture if... We're not sure who is taking. Well, we know. I mean, we can tell who's taking. In the sense of demographics, we know who's taking it. Um, but it, it, because it's a large swath of the population and it takes place in all 50 states, like it is, it, it is a large survey sample size. Now, you're going to miss some people, of course, but because there's so many, um, it beats the survey numbers of having a um, good like, view of society, I mean, tenfold. I mean, if you look at the national polls for, like, elections, they, they don't have nearly the same um, stuff that they can kind of pull from. Um, so 2012. 2012. We know from studies that this is a huge year. Um, when you look at all these data points, the graphs start having large, abrupt shifts. So, like, things that we were gaining um, over the course of several generations suddenly are dropping, uh, self-esteem being one of them, um, 
a, a positive view of their future is one of them. Um, suicide rates suddenly skyrocket. Um, so like it's, 2012 is a huge year for where we're seeing abrupt shifts in the data um, that's been really documented for the last 50 years. Um, really, we've not seen anything like it before. Um, so what is the reason behind that? Uh, why is 2012 such a big deal? Um, so 2012 is a big deal because this was exactly when the majority of Americans started to own cell phones that could access the Internet. So suddenly the majority of Americans and the majority of teenagers suddenly had access to the Internet. Um, popularly known as smartphones, this product has suddenly shipped in iGen. As a tagline of the class, how technology has changed the generation, as Twenge says, the biggest difference between millennials and their predecessors was in worldview, with more focus on self and less social rules. That's the term generation me. With the popularity of the smartphone, iGeners differ most in how they spend the time. Their life experiences they have every day are radically different from those of their predecessors. So it's not in worldview, which was my, my generation's biggest change. It's how they spend their time. Um, so the reason we're discussing this in Sunday school class, and the reason I think it's so important, is that iGen makes up 24% of the U.S. population. So if you understand that, one out of every four people you're going to interact with are going to have this type of worldview, and this is how they spend their time. So if we're really going to have an impact on the gospel uh, impact on the next generation, we need to at least understand this. Um, I wish I'd had more than six weeks to cover this, but you need to know it. For those of you that are iGen, you need to know this about yourselves. This is really important for just for kind of self-diagnostics. Um, so here's the here's one. So iGen is less likely to go out without their parents. Um, so what do I mean by that? The trend began with millennials and then took a nosedive around 2012. Um, the numbers are stunning. 12th graders in 2015 are going out less often than 8th graders did in 2009. So as 18-year-olds, now going out less than 14-year-olds did just um, six years prior. That's a huge shift in demographic. um, Yes? Would you tie that in with uh, obsessed with safety? Yeah, we're going to get to safetyism um, next week or the week after. Um, But you see that. So this is across all racial demographics and all socioeconomic levels. So it's not just white kids. It's just as much African-Americans and other uh, people groups. Um, The reason behind this most likely is the smartphone, which now teens had in 2011, 2012. Um, Now, this has got, like, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like, some of it's good. Um, The relationship with parents uh, viewed as a positive is actually up since 2011, 2012. Um, So, like, teenagers are learning um, how to have a better relationship with their parents. But independence is taking a huge hit. Um, so they don't know how to be independent, they know how to think on their own, and they don't know how to make decisions on their own, whether good or bad. They're simply just not given the chance, right? Um, so l- let me address this, because it happens every year. Like, I've been doing youth ministry for, in some regards, since I was 18. And every year I have high school parents come up to me, especially high school senior parents. Um, and they're like... They're stressing the home, you know, suddenly, like, they, wanna, they want X, Y, and Z. Um, and I visibly, I, I visibly shocked a parent last year when I responded with, awesome. Like, that's great. Like, there should be some tension in the home. Like, that's good. Like, that means you're ready to kick them out of the nest, right? Like, if there's no tension, you might have a much larger pro- problem on your hands uh, because they are very comfortable in the nest. Um, so 
Tension is a good thing. So to, to encourage you parents, if there's tension in your home with college students and, and late high schoolers, awesome. That's good. Um, so it doesn't mean if there's no tension, it's bad, but it, that means it's a lot of times parents are freaking out. What do I do here? No, no, no. This is, this is natural. This is good. Um, so uh, teenagers need to learn how to develop independent relationships. Um, and, and a lot of them aren't. And so you're going to see the drop in dating habits. Um, so it's just taking a note. We can discuss the dangers and merits of dating another time. That's fine. Um, but we're getting there. It, it's, it's very clear that uh, iGen are getting less and less face-to-face inter- interaction with the opposite gender. So that's going to affect, like, long-term, like, how do I... How do I court? Like, how do I deal with someone socially, like in a setting? Like, they don't know how to do those things we're going to see. Um, The data also tells us uh, parents, uh, this is interesting, parents have warned their teenagers about the dangers of dating since the beginning of time, right? Like, my parents said, like, this is the rules, this is what you need to do, this is what you want to watch out for. And I was always like, okay, mom, that's fine, right? Like, I, I kicked back a little because I wanted to do things my way and the way that all my friends were doing, right? This is the first generation that's, like, listening to mom and dad. It's like, yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. Yeah, I'm absolutely part of that, right? So there's always been this, like, this, this tension, and suddenly it's beginning to, like, disappear, right? Um, and, and this is the balancing act. We're going to talk about this a lot. Um, I don't know how they took that picture, but I don't care. Um, and the balancing act is risk versus safety, right? Um, this happens with teenagers. Um, teenagers, because of both their brain development and the fact that they want to begin to stretch their wings and test their independence, they are more likely to take risks than any other people group, right? Um, they just are because of where they are, both in their development and, and their culture. Um, and it's always balanced with safety. Um, and sometimes you get, that means that you have a mature kid, right? Like, safety's a good thing. You know, you want to know certain things not to do. You don't, the school of hard knocks sucks. It teaches hard lessons. And, but, but iGen is, uh, not iGen, but teenagers are, historically, they are much more on the risk theory. Um, and, and in some ways, it's good. That is how teenagers develop independence. They take risks. You can't develop independence without risk. Like, it's, it's impossible because then you're always relying on someone. So it's, again, it's the seesaw tension of risk versus safety. How do I balance it? Um, how do I navigate it, right? And that's good. You, you want teenagers learning how to navigate the, how to make independent decisions in life. Um, but this generation, um, like, doesn't do that. They are much more on the safety side of things, uh, and they're, they're, they're driven by fear, um, than previous teenage generations. Um, and some of this is good, right? Like, um, teen sexual rates and uh, mm-hmm. drinking have dropped drastically in the past four or five years, right? It's good. Um, but those are typically things that adults do, and so we'll get to that later. But so, like, there's this balancing act that's being played out that we still don't know how to navigate. Again, we don't know how to navigate it because you're, we're digital immigrants teaching digital natives, and, and how do we how do we interact and create more face to face? So this is some of the balancing act that we're seeing. Senior drivers, right? So nearly all boomers. Who are boomers in the room? 
I know I got some boomers, right? So nearly all boomer high school students have a driver's license by the spring of their senior year, right? In 2015, only 72% did. So one out of every um, four teenagers did not have their driver's license by the time they graduated, right? Um, and this goes back to the risk safety paradigm. When I talk to teens about the reasons they don't get their license, it's two reasons that they give me across the board. One is fear, right? Like, I don't know what to do on the roads. I'm so scared. Like, and again, it's that, how do I take risks? How do I learn to be safe? You can't learn how to be safe without taking risks. Again, it's, it's bouncing out, right? But fear is the number one reason the teenagers give me. The second one, the, the reason the teenagers give me, is that my parents will drive me everywhere. So, like, what do I need? I have an Uber, Right? Like, I have a built-in lift. Like, I don't got to drive. I don't got to pay for my gas. Like, they don't take me everywhere. And this is my experience, and then this is also the author's experience um, as she studied this stuff. The author of the book um, interviewed hundreds, if not over a thousand teenagers, and asked them these very specific questions. Like, um, and this is, this is the, you know... Or coming to. Twenge goes on, she says this, the most consistent decline appears among suburban teens, suggesting that the downslide has more to do with mom and dad driving junior around. Okay? So it's suburban teens. Notice that. Students in all 50 states have the right to drive by 16. Hallelujah. So either with a learner's permit or a license. But in 2015, for the first time, the majority of 10th graders did not drive at all not even with a learner's permit. That was the first time in history, so 2015. The decline in driving appears across all regions, ethnic groups, and social economic classes. So it's just gone. This one was interesting, because I was, right? Decline of the latchkey kid, right? Like, I was that kid. Like, I'd get home before mom and dad, and I did that. I remember doing that, right? Like, I remember being like, I'm taking a shot of chocolate before mom and dad get home. I'd make the chocolate milk in my mouth, right? Like, put in the chocolate first, dump in the milk after. Right? That was my childhood. I I remember being a latchkey kid. It was awesome. Life was great. Um, Watched a lot of uh, UPN and and other um, silly shows in the afternoon. Um, but the number of latchkey kids is in decline, too, even though there are more full-time working mothers than ever before. So that's a weird uh, diagram So since the 1990s. Um, we don't know whether this is through after-school programs or other mechanisms, but parents have arranged for fewer 14, 15, and 60-year-olds to be home by themselves in the afternoon. And so, um, thus, this is interesting, um, teens are not just less likely to go out without their parents, they're also less likely to be home without their parents. Okay? Which goes back to the IGEN developing independence. Okay? Well, maybe it has to do with the fact that they're working more, right? Like, maybe they have jobs. <laughs> Decline of the teen job. Look, I love my teen job. My first job, I was a 15-year-old. I was a soccer referee at the YMCA. I worked Saturdays. It was awesome. It was so much fun. Um, And then at 16, I was a summer camp counselor, working 50 hours a week during the summer. It was a day camp, hallelujah, I got to sleep in my own bed at night. But I loved it. Like, that was was such a, when I think back to the fondest memories of my teenage experience, so much of it revolves around summer camp. Like, I just learned how to be independent. And I learned what it was like to begin to manage my own money, or, or not manage my own money. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I learned what, beginning to learn how to be an adult. Um... And I had the option, right, of direct deposit. That existed when I was in uh, working. 
But I didn't do that until I was like 20. Why? Like, one, Trudy was awesome. She was our admin lady. I wanted to go see Trudy. Um, she was like my second mom at camp. Um, but when I got my check, I held my check. I got to look at the note. I earned this money. And then I would take it to the bank and be like, this is mine. Please deposit it in my account, right? And then the food I bought tasted better. The clothes I bought, they, they, they felt better on my body because there was some sense of, like, these are mine, right? Um, I loved it. Um, but we're not seeing that anymore. This is not your typical story for the modern teenager. Um, there's been a decline in teen job. In the late 1970s, only 22% of high schoolers didn't work for pay at all during the school year. But as early as 2010, twice as many, 44% didn't. So the Great Recession in 2007 and 2009 accelerated this trend, but working did not bounce back when the recession ended. Not only that, but those who do work, work less hours. 12th graders headed to college in 2016, first 1987, worked about five fewer hours a week less, about 40 minutes a day. And then fewer teens worked at the summer as well. 1980, some of you were around for that, 70% of you had a job during the summer, right? Which sank to about 43% in 2010. So again, that's cutting it in half. And the decline in summer job doesn't seem to be due to the inability to find a job. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the number of teens who want a summer job but can't find one is about to stay the same. But the number who don't want a job at all has doubled. So kids, iGen just don't want to work, okay? Um, well, maybe that's because they have more homework or extracurricular activities. Um, I mean, you have to pad your resume for college, right? Like, all the seniors in here know this. Like, I got to, this is my volunteer hours, and this is this, right? We got to put that stuff done. Um, so this one shook my preconceived notions, because I thought the exact opposite of the data. So I apologize ahead of time. This is a longer quote, but this is what the data says. Time spent in student clubs and on sports exercises as 12th graders has changed little over time. The one rise with iGen is their volunteer work, which is now often required for high school graduation. Recent students did about 10 minutes more a day volunteer work than those in the late 1980s. However, the rise in volunteering took place between 1980 and 1990, long before the existence of the smartphone, and has ticked very little since then. The timing is wrong, and the change is too small to account for the large drop in working for pay. So what about time spent on homework? As it turns out, iGen 8th, 10th, and 12th graders actually spend less time on homework than Gen Xers did in the early 1990s, and high school seniors heading for four-year colleges spend about the same amount of time. Between 2005 and 2015, a period when working for pay decreased the most, homework time was a mixed bag. 8th graders spent about eight minutes less, um, and 10th to 12th graders spent about 10 minutes more a day. These shifts are too small to account for the much larger drop in the time spent working for pay and 8th graders than are in the wrong direction with both homework and time spent working for pay decreasing. We can also consider the total amount of time teens spend on paid work, homework, volunteering, and extracurricular activities when we look at those four indicators. If that total has gone up or stayed the same, teens have shifted the time they used for work, pay, and homework like they've shifted in between one of those four categories, right? If time is the same, but it's not. If the total has gone down, homework time is not filled the hours team use to spend a job. Um, so it does it. They actually have more time um, than a lot of you did. So that's the client of teamwork. So work. we did walk up to school, heal both ways. Yeah, you did. You both did. Ways. This is the amount of, uh, is that, yeah, that's the next one. So uh, this is the client of teamwork. The trends 
for this total are clear. IG teams are spending less time on homework, paid work, volunteering, and extracurricular, <coughs> extracurricular activities combined, not more. Because they actually are doing less things than my generation did or your generation did. For example, high school seniors heading to college in 2015 spent four fewer hours a week on homework, paid work, volunteer work, and extracurricular activities during their last year of high school than those entering college in 1987. Okay? Um, so that's the, that's the change. Okay? Now... Some of you are in the back and like, I have 100 AP classes. None of you even know what AP means, right? Like, I get that. Like, some of you are different. This is statistics across the board. Chill out. Um, I agree that some of you are way over homeworked. Um, we can have a discussion on AP classes for another, for another time. Um, but they still get cash, right? So even with the decline in work, they're still like a force on the uh, workplace. So how do they get cash? Fewer jobs for making money and fewer getting allowances, Right? So those in iGen that need money simply ask their parents to pay for things, and parents are more likely to give it. This is yet another example of how 18-year-olds are now like 15-year-olds. Just like children and young adolescents, one out of every five iGen high school seniors ask their parents for what they want instead of managing their own cash flow. They're not prepared for when they do get kicked out of the nest because they don't know how to do it. And we're gonna, we'll end there because I'm running out of time and... Um, we're going to talk there. This is adulthood versus childhood um, and kind of the different changes. But you'll see it. I mean, we can just look at this real quick. But there's a – the reason we talk about driving, alcohol, dating, and work for pay is those are adult activities. At least they should be, right? Um, and you have this adulthood versus childhood. And you see the drop, right? You see it plummet around 2012 um, of all these things changing. It's just really interesting, right? When I said abrupt shifts in the data, I meant abrupt <laughs> shifts in the data. Um, so it has very much changed. So we'll end there. Any questions before I leave you today with no hope? <laughs> yes? Does, does she talk any about the reasonings behind... Yeah, we're going to get to some of that soon. Um, Kim alluded to it earlier. Safetyism is very much a creep in our culture. Um, the parents of today's teenagers grew up in the world of unsolved mysteries on Friday night. Um, so, like, doo -doo -doo, this person was kidnapped. Don't let your kids outside. Like, um, and that's been taken to an extreme, right? Like, there's there's less there's less violent crime. There's less abductions, there's less teens running away, like, across the board, but we are so, we isolate our kids so much more um, than any other generation. Um, some of it is safetyism, and some of it is culture dictated, right? Like, so in 1970, um, to, the checklist for whether your kid was ready for kindergarten was all individual activities, right? Like, one of them, which freaked me out, was like, can your kindergartner walk to a friend's house three blocks away alone? Like, that was on the checklist in 1970, right? Now, they're going to file a CPS case against you if you do that, right? So, like, even its culture dictated made it down. Now it's all like, can they count? Can they do their alphabet? It's all very pragmatic. It has nothing to do with independence. Um, but we don't teach independence in schools anymore. We teach um, how to and what to, not why or... You know, those things are missing. 
So we'll see that coming up. Yes? Is it that there's less conflict with, between teens and parents, or is it just that the timeline has shifted? You know, have there been studies now into the 20s? No, no, I mean, those are, we're still getting that, right? Yeah. Um, for, the best book on that is going to be Coddling of the American Mind, because you see it, right? I mean, we, the iGen is categorized for um, 30-year-olds living at home. I mean, the, the parents had to sue their son, right, in uh, Pennsylvania earlier this year to kick their 30-year-old out of the home. Um, and their son fought it in court, right, um, with his super long beard and scraggly hair he hasn't cut in three years, right? Because he liked his parents' basement. Uh, it was comfortable, and mom still brought him um, miniature hot dogs. Like, why would I leave? Um, you know? But that, that, that's the joke, but like that categorizes a generation. Um, so it's a little bit of both. I think parents are getting sick of it in their 20s, but many times, sometimes they've enabled it, and sometimes the culture has kind of bled into the child. Um, and we're going to see the impact. I mean, a lot of it is this, right? Like all their pleasure centers are gratified in, their, in the pockets of their hands. And they don't have to risk face-to-face relationships because texting is so much easier than that, right? But we know 85% of talking happens um, not in words. It's actually like um, how people respond and all that. But they're, they're, not, they're not taught that. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, those of you that are hiring this generation mm-hmm. enjoy those job interviews for the next decade. Um, so I'll text you their resume. Um, in, in texting.